Welcome to the Vegetable Beat. My name is Ben Phillips, and I work with Michigan State University Extension. And my name is Natalie Hoytel. I work with the University of Minnesota Extension. We've been doing this podcast over the last few years, and we're changing the format a little bit for this season. We're going to do some pre-recorded interviews. It might not be us doing them, but we'll have some other folks featured sometimes. And this is one of those episodes. Rue Ginger at the University of Wisconsin was interested in interviewing vegetable farmers who do no-till and low-till production. So this is one of those interviews. The first that we have from Rue right now. How are we doing this, Natalie? So this podcast is brought to you by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. It was kickstarted by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center, and our license for Transistor is held by the University of Minnesota Extension. And you can listen to this episode and all the rest at glveg.net slash listen. Take it away, Rue. Okay, so hello, Jimmy, and thank you for joining me today. Um, so the name of your farm is Farm Farm, and I'm sure there's a story behind that name. Uh, I was wondering if we could lead off with you telling us a little bit about the farm. Uh, yeah, um, we are indeed called Farm Farm, and uh, I suppose that was just our clever way of not actually having to come up with a name. <laughs> um, we've been um, growing vegetables since 2011. Um, and we bought our own farm in 2019. So between then and, uh, we were on, we, we produced, um, three different locations. The final, uh, one before our purchase was more of an incubator farm. Um, we are an organic farm, but we are not certified. We sell a hundred percent of our vegetables through our CSA program, as well as two Saturday farmers markets. Mm -hmm. Um, We produce on two acres um, and about a quarter acre of that is uh, greenhouse and high tunnel space. Uh Uh-huh. So greenhouse sounds like maybe you have some heated space in there? Correct, yeah. Um, The heated greenhouse is 30 by 144 feet. And then we have five caterpillar tunnels that are 12 by 100 feet long. And then one high tunnel that's 20 by 48. Nice, nice. So um, you're up in Princeton, Minnesota. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the conditions that you're farming in, um, the soil that you're on, that kind of thing? Yeah. we're in Princeton, which is about an hour north of the Twin Cities. So we actually jumped a half a zone when we moved from our other location in Delano. Um, this is a very sandy area. Uh, our soil type is fine sand. Um, no loam about that. Um, yeah. But we were pretty intentional on wanting sandy ground. Um, you know, this is really excessively sandy, but um, I feel that's better for our operation than being too heavy Mm -hmm. Uh, when we were originally looking for a place to buy we were hoping to try to stay in the area of Delano or Wright County but um the kind of sandy ground is just limited to around rivers and its proximity to the Twin Cities was also is more of an expensive area to try to stay in and I suppose the further you north you go it gets a little cheaper and and then the sandy agricultural ground is usually cheaper because it's officially it's not very good soil um, mm-hmm. for like row crops and stuff. 
but we knew we could amend the soils to get get the fertility that we needed and we had an irrigation well drilled when we moved in so um we kind of are taking care of the limitations of the sand um because there's only so much drainage you can get out of any kind of loam or clay loam or anything like that and on one of our incubator farms we had a mix of sandy ground and a mix of loam and we definitely got to experience the best of both worlds you know obviously heavier ground is a little bit more fertile and you don't have to worry about watering as much but then you know you get a wet week and it keeps you out of that area um and then you know obviously vegetables are a lot easier to wash when it's sand and not mud yeah yeah i've definitely had that experience <laughs> so um so I invited you here to talk about um, no-till and reduced till practices in growing organic vegetables. And I thought that we could lead off by talking about um, what you consider to be tillage, for example, um, in, a, in a real purist um, interpretation, some people might consider a broad fork uh, tillage. Um, is a time weeder tillage. So could you talk a little bit about with your low till or no till practices, what kinds of soil disturbance are you trying to avoid? Uh, we definitely avoid anything that inverts the soil layers as much as possible. Um, and yeah, from a purist point of view, any kind of soil disturbance, raking, hoeing is, is tilling, but um, I am not a purist. I'm trying to make a profit farming. So mm -hmm. um, our current uh, production is uh, a little broad forking, um, especially before carrots or parsnips or anything like that. Um, and then we have a power harrow we use on our walk behind tractor. Mm -hmm. um, and I typically only try to set that as deep as we need to. And that varies depending on what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the uses that you make of the power harrow? Um, it's usually um, in the springtime, all of our beds receive compost and we use that to just level out the compost. I set it basically to its shallowest setting, mm -hmm. which for me, I took the machine onto a cement slab and lowered the tines down to when they were touching the cement. And I filed a notch in on the little on the little doohickey that uh, lowers it. And then I set it all the way deep and filed a notch in there and then put a mm. few in between. So it's kind of my depth gauge. Mm, so nice. in the springtime when we apply the compost, um, and this year we're doing about an inch and a half per bed or about one and a quarter yards per uh, hundred foot bed. Um, I just set that to the shallowest setting, that first notch there. And it's really just to kind of break up the chunks of the compost and you know, even, even firm it up a little bit and level it out. Um, mm -hmm. and we tried, we tried transplanting and seeding into just the straight compost. And, um, it was just, it was just a little bit better results when the chunks were there and, you know, the power hair does a really great job leveling the soil much, much more thoroughly and quicker than a rake could. And, yeah. you know, we have to, it's very, uh, it's less work to obviously use a machine doing that. Um, but we only um we're only putting the compost down in the spring so when we're ever whenever we're flipping beds we're gonna reincorporate um some composted poultry manure like a like a 432 product mm -hmm. um so i might just set that about an inch down you can still see a lot of it on the surface afterwards but it's it's enough 
for me, I feel to get that uh, fertilizer incorporated enough to rot and actually become plant food. Yeah. And then also, you know, when we're, we're flipping beds to replant, it's nice to, to have a little bit of loose surface for transplanting or seeding. Um, so it sounds like the, the disturbance is just, you're really trying to limit that to as shallow as possible. And as you said, just info, avoid inverting the soil ever. Yeah, correct. Um, like I said, we were broad forking before carrots and parsnips this year. Um, last year and the year before, we were pretty much broad forking every bed before planting. And um, we were just really looking in ways to cut back on labor this year. So we're like, well, we can skip some broad forking um, this year because we've done a lot of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then probably next year, we'll try to hit up, a, I don't know, I'd say about half of our beds, try to try to get that broad forking action in. Uh -huh. at least once every other year because even though we're sandy it, it can still get packed down um you know even if we're avoiding foot traffic or machinery on the beds there's yeah there are other factors that are packing the soil down um but that being said the sandy ground is naturally gonna have more air in it than heavier grounds so the purpose of tilling or loosening the soil for aeration really isn't that of a much of a necessity yeah yeah, that's definitely an advantage there. So when you when you initially bought that land, um, you didn't start off with no-till systems, um, as far as I understand. What led you to start experimenting with that? Um, well, I'd say around 2015, 2016, we bought a power harrow and a flail mower for our walk behind. And we were just, I don't know, I mean, uh, you have to have a reason to tell, I guess. And we were just trying to, I don't know, make less work of everything. Um, at our incubator farm, we had access to a reciprocating spading machine, which is really great to like turn sod into seed beds quickly, but it, it really, uh, you know, really goes deep and it really works the ground. So mm. you know, just for everything we knew about, you know, every time you, work the soil you're burning up organic matter and below the point of your machinery you're, you're probably going to create a hard pan hmm. um, so the first thing we did was really just stop plowing we stopped using the spader i had a little chisel plow i guess i could have been using but ultimately it was just like we just stopped plowing um then you know we bought our place in 2019 um and unfortunately we were not able to close until may of that spring mm -hmm. and so we had the farmer who was uh growing hay here on our field we had him use a moldboard plow to flip it over mm -hmm. so we needed to kill that sod and we needed to begin production right away um so that spring we were producing in delano uh, where we were at for a long time and then started uh, transitioning production up that first year we moved here so for a few months there's a lot of back and forth and the two are about an hour apart mm -hmm. um, it was a really nutty first year obviously trying to yeah. move your farm in the spring and we built the greenhouse and moved all our tunnels and <laughs> wow That's it was quite a spring. <laughs> it sounds bad yeah um so yeah i mean we're, we consider ourselves a no-till farm but the, you know the first thing we had to do was was moldboard plow and flip the the soil layers under because we need to kill that sod and yeah. plus it had been a hay field for i don't know 20 years so um running that heavy equipment over it is gonna you know everything was really compacted and yeah um 
you know, I think uh, it, had we had more time, even if we could have like tarped two acres, I don't know, we probably would have still needed a plow just for the compaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to, I don't know, I think you need to start off the right spot. You can't just, you know, turn a yard into a vegetable garden without some disturbance. But since that first initial plowing, we've been pretty gentle. But mm-hmm. I will say um, we did have a couple of field roads that we got rid of this year. So um, uh-huh. I did use our little chisel plow um, just to reduce the compaction. Um, yeah. So I'm not, a, uh, you know, I'm not against tilling when it's appropriate. And, it, you know, you just need to have a really good reason to do it. Um, compaction being probably one of the better reasons. Um, so that being said, we we avoid compaction in our beds by never driving on them with the, the tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we use a tractor and a compost spreader to spread the compost. So I have installed um, bricks or pavers every 10 beds in our field. So every time I'm going to drive the tractor over the bed, I measure off those bricks that never mm-hmm. move. I measure mm-hmm. every four feet, put in a flag, and now I've got like a, you know, I can line up the flags and more or less keep everything, all the, all the walkways uh, or all the tractor tires in the walkways and never driving on the bed. Yeah, nice. Those permanent bed systems um, are a real blessing, I think, if you can install that. Yeah, and we were trying to keep our beds permanent um, at our previous locations, but it was more like the eyeballing method. And then, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, like two, two different sides of the fields meet in the middle, and you've got like a two-foot wide bed or a six-foot wide bed, and you're like, oh, geez. Yeah, yeah. That system with the bricks and the flags sounds, uh, sounds brilliant just to keep you on track. Yeah. And then we even got uh, axle extensions for our Grillo walk behind tractor just to keep a little bit more weight off of uh, off the beds. Although I do need to take them off time and time, uh, especially for mowing, so I can get closer to certain areas. And and then sometimes I, I might need a uh, power harrow or something, uh, the whole width of the bed, not just the growing space, if it's too weedy or you know for different reasons. Uh huh. So what percentage um, of your crops are you growing with some sort of re- reduced tillage system at this point? Uh, I'd say almost everything uh, except potatoes, simply because we, I use that uh, chisel plow toolbar thing. I put a nice big fat furrow maker on the back and we dig a trench mm-hmm. to plant the potatoes. And then I'll use the, uh, you know, close, close them up with the tractor. I'll use the tractor to hill the potatoes. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, you know, we're not chisel plowing or anything beforehand. It's, uh, and I'm never going to, I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to broad fork before potatoes, even. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a carrot. They don't need to be super straight. And they seem, we seem to get good yields out of our potato beds without that. Um, so aside from that, aside from the potatoes and aside from, you know, converting old field roads into production space, or last year we were, um, we got a strip on one of our, uh, field edges along the woods there that we wanted asparagus so you know mm-hmm. i i rototilled the quack grass to kill it and we chisel yeah. plowed and um just to get us off to a good start but moving forward all of that won't be tilled and uh yeah so just just potatoes so after a crop like potatoes we're obviously at harvest you're completely turning over the soil are there any special methods that you use to transition back into low-till or are there crops that you follow potatoes with to take advantage of that disrupted soil um 
Well, last year we bought a little potato digger, a Speto brand one. Um, so that really allows us to get the potatoes out on time, you know, mm-hmm. say by mid-September, because they're usually pretty dead by then. Um, and that was plenty of time for us to get a hairy vegetable winter rye cover crop in. So we, our plan was to just put a, that kind of cover crop in to sort of glue the soil structure back together with some roots. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, uh, we actually ended up tarping it really early this spring um, because the deer had spent all late winter, early spring coming to our field to eat the cover crop. And as soon as we started transplanting outdoors, they ate those too. Oh, <laughs> so no. we tarp, tarped the cover crop, covered all of our transplants with row cover, and then put a fifth row of electric wire around our whole field. Um, we, have a, we have insane deer pressure up here. I grew up in the country, oh, the river, uh, and I'd never seen them this thick. Like some evenings you come back, you know, the last two miles, you'll see like 20 deer. And they oh, just love it. We're surrounded by woods. Uh, there's a bunch of swamps and lakes around. And it's just, they just love it here. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, aside from that, the, you know, the, the four or five rows of electric fences, more or less effective until the grass grounds it out and you got to go uh-huh. and weed with and they get in. And then the little, <laughs> the little baby bambies come in because they, they don't um, respect the electric fence or they haven't learned it yet. And yeah. It's ongoing for sure. Yeah, that sounds like a constant battle. But um, the electric fence in the top helped out, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, on the topic of cover crops, like I honestly have not been super successful with them. Slash, haven't really done much with them. We're pretty uh, reliant on compost at and adding compost to our soil for the fertility. Mm-hmm. but I am looking forward to doing more experiments with them. Um, and that is going to be, I think, you know, maybe one of the challenges about no-till is you turning a cover crop into, you know, a seed bed. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, so that's a great lead into um, you describing, uh, could you describe what your favorite uh, no-till systems or low-till systems are? on your farm um, and just walk us through um, the details. You've talked a little bit already about your bed prep, um, but if you could also talk about how you're managing fertility and how you're planting into those systems, weed control, um, all of those things, that'd be great if you could walk us through that. Sure. Um, I definitely, uh, I get a soil sample every year, um, whether that's taken in the spring or the fall beforehand um and we use different amendments based on those results so um this year was actually you know we use a ton of elemental sulfur because we're starting to trend pretty alkaline um Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that the farmer who is running this field i don't know he told me he put down a bunch of lime which he definitely put down a bunch of lime because we're like seven and a half seven point seven oh so we're trying to get that a little bit back towards yeah yeah, on sand it's like what the hell yeah, because uh, we moved here, it was six and a half. I was like, "Oh, that's perfect." But um, so this year was a lot of elemental sulfur and then um, copper and manganese sulfates. Uh, usually a little gypsum every year and a little boron. Um, it's kind of a blanket approach to the whole field, unless we have a certain reason to add a little bit of this or that. You know, beets like boron or coal crops like boron, they might get a little extra juice of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for 2020 and 2021, we were doing what we called the double dump of compost. So our compost spreader holds about a yard and a quarter. So we were doing 
two loads per bed, which would be at least three inches of uh, vegetative yard waste compost. Um, mm -hmm. We had um, actually had ended up doubling our CSA when COVID happened. So we're like, well, we got all this money in hand. We can't mess around with weeding. So let's just put it on thick. Our soil needs it anyway. You know, mm -hmm. we started with one and a half percent organic matter. Um, but this year we're just back down to the one load, um, about the inch, inch and a half per bed. Um, our, our nutrient levels are getting pretty good. You know, mm -hmm. organic matter, even though, you know, we put in the span of three years, we put seven <laughs> inches of compost on the bed and organic yeah. matter in the sand is only 2.8 right now in the field. It takes um, a long time to shift it, but that's pretty impressive over a pretty short period of time. That's right. quite a big jump. But, but the greenhouse having, excluding all the precipitation, limiting them, I think eliminating the microbial activity, our greenhouse tested 7% this spring, uh -huh. organic matter. Um, I did switch labs. Um, so our field mm -hmm. tests were from a different lab. There might be a little discrepancy that way. Um, but the greenhouse also, we're putting a little peat moss in for the last couple of years, in, in addition to the compost, just because we feel it's a, you know, it's a long lasting source of organic matter that isn't going to have as many of those soluble salts that we're all trying to avoid in our covered spaces. Yeah. Um, so early on, yeah, we were putting in lots of compost, correcting our chemistry with different organic amendments. Um, we typically lay down our composted poultry manure fertilizer before the compost, because then it's definitely incorporated. Um, do a slight harrow on top of the compost just to break up the clumps, create a seed bed, smooth it out, even pack it down a little bit because fluffy compost can just dry out and become hydrophobic. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, the you know, flagging each bed so I'm not driving on um, any of the production space with the heavy equipment. Um, Early on in the spring, we are pretty strategic with where we lay out silage tarps. So, you know, if something is not getting planted till late May, it'll just kind of be tarped until the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, just keep the weeds from, you know, getting established. We spent a lot of time physically digging out quack grass roots with, with garden forks, hours and hours. Because um, we, you know, not being tilling or only disturbing the soil an inch, maybe two inches down, we're that's a really great place for quackgrass to just thrive yeah and that is something i don't know you could tarp it all year and it'll just grow through the tarp it seems <laughs> it's like the worst thing of a load of loads of compost delivered in the fall and you know late october even but but comes first time in the spring they've already grown through two feet of the compost uh so we just we don't mess around with the quackgrass yeah is that your most significant perennial weed yeah yeah other than that uh you know we actually had a lot of weed seeds a lot of annuals drop weeds last weed seeds last year mm -hmm. um, some of our loads of compost that came in on the spring didn't cook up enough at the facility over the winter so they were kind of loaded with mostly lambs quarter and since we were doing the double load of compost we didn't really budget enough time or labor to take care of those weeds. And we had a few choice spots that are pretty weedy this year, but we kind of realized that would be the case and in, in budgeted time for it. So we're, yeah, we are, I think we're doing pretty okay in the weeds this year. Um, but yeah, that's, it's kind of an always ongoing process, obviously. Yeah. And then, 
a low till system, you don't have that that disruption that's going to knock those perennial weeds back. So I think that's something to me as a researcher, that's something that I'm really interested in how we can manage those without causing, um, without disrupting all of the benefits of reduced tillage. Um, so yeah, are you mainly I mean, going in and, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. That that might be a reason also on why I'm a little nervous about trying the cover crops because that's just another place for the perennials to get established with perennial weeds. Um, I mean, since 2019, basically the entirety of our field has been in constant vegetable production. So that really just doesn't allow that many perennials to get established. Yeah. Uh-huh. And when they do, are you going in and hand digging those out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, our neighbor's little prairie's got a bunch of milkweed in it and some of it's starting to, you know, I see some here and there pop up in our fields, but you know, for the most part, we keep, we try to keep everything weed free and some of our beds, even the outdoor beds see a couple crops a year. So there's, there's lots of ch chances for us to kind of hit the reset button, whether that's just mowing and maybe I'll do a slight, you know, a shallow power harrow just to help the, the whatever I mowed break down or we'll tarp it a little bit. Um, uh -huh. So um, into this system where you're, you're spreading compost on the beds, are you planting by hand or are you, when you're like dealing with transplants, um, versus direct seeded crops. Um, what are your planting methods? Uh, we transplant by hand. Um, we are looking at getting the paper pot transplanter for next year, but it just seems very expensive. <laughs> I yeah. feel like it's probably, they could probably make it a lot cheaper and the paper chain's a lot cheaper, but people are willing to pay what they're paying for it now. So why would they do that? But, you know, you crunch the numbers, you figure out how many hours it takes for somebody to plant a bed of Salanova or something that's really tightly spaced. And you're like, oh, okay, maybe this makes sense. So we're going to give that a try. But otherwise, everything is um, is hand transplanted. We have this roller, a couple of rollers that we built that you just roll over the bed and makes like a grid system. So you can, you know, plant it at every intersection or only plant the two outside rows or, you know, there's a lot of uh, flexibility in with just a couple of gridding rollers that we have. Mm -hmm. And then how about with uh, direct seeded crops like carrots or parsnips you were mentioning before? Um, we use, a, we have a Jang seeder, the three row Jang. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the only things we're really direct seeding are the carrots, parsnips, beans, radishes, hakurai, uh, we transplant our first couple rounds of beets, but we direct seed the beets after that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, what else? Yeah, but yeah, that's probably about it. Um, I use pelleted beet seed. I use pelleted carrots. Um, sorry, pelleted, pelleted parsnips. So I use raw beet, uh, carrot seeds. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing about a deep compost mulch system like we're sort of doing is, let's say, you know, you're trying to get that 10 rows of beds with uh for arugula or baby lettuce mix or whatever and you can uh you can put all three hoppers real close together on the jang but it's just gonna plug up with a bunch of compost so uh-huh yeah that's one of the downsides of it i sort of overcame that reality by you know 
staggering the I'll go down the I'll make a pass with the Jang with the, the three hoppers set wide and then I'll kind of offset that so that the hoppers are now in between what was just laid down and mm-hmm. uh, depending on how careful I'm being or how much time I have they can end up pretty pretty straight even these space rows but sometimes they're, they're really close together um yeah our farmers markets don't really allow us to sell too much like baby arugula and since we switched over to salanova for like salad mix we don't really do too much direct seeding of Mm -hmm. you know like a like baby lettuces or or baby arugula or anything like in the mustard family or asian greens um Uh which i'm fine with you know they're they're a ton of work and it's pretty easy to have crop failures with that stuff but that being said you get you know i like growing the greens and radishes and stuff you get you get so many tries per year and get planted every week. Yeah. Yeah. If you mess up your tomatoes, it's like, well, that was it. <laughs> so speaking of tomatoes, um, I, I've been wondering about your fertility management and obviously with, you know, full season crops or long season crops like that, um, you can put down a certain amount at the start, but um, how much are you finding that you have to amend different crops as you go through the season? Um. Yeah, that's something we're still learning about since I, 2019 was the first year. Well, actually, we built the heated greenhouse in 2019, but 2020 was the first year we were actually able to produce those early tomatoes and cucumbers. Mm-hmm. And they need, they need food. Uh, they need additional fertility, more, much more than you can provide early on. Um, so the heated greenhouse area is... Um, we're not putting as much compost as the field. We're being very careful with our amendments. I'm not using anything manure based. I'm just trying to avoid those soluble salts that it can accumulate. And so far we're doing pretty good. I think we're still under, I don't know, one, 1% or whatever. It's 0.05 or I don't know. They're still very low for the, you know, several years we're in there. So mm-hmm. um, the last couple of years we do a half, half inch of peat moss and then an inch of compost on top of that in addition to whatever the chemistry is asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll use feather meal for the nitrogen or blood meal. Um, and again, something not manure based. Uh, yeah, so what, what is your compost uh, based on? Are you able to get that? Are you, able, are you getting a local source of compost? Yeah, I think the facility might be 40 minutes away. It's just yard waste compost. It's cheaper than the manure based. Obviously, mm-hmm. the manure is going to have a little bit more nutrients in it, but we're trying to go after that uh, cheap source of organic matter. So we're paying, oh, they just raised the price. I think they're charging us 15 bucks a yard now for, uh-huh. you know, uh, not delivered. And then we got to pay the trucker. Yeah. But still, that's cheaper than the facility we were getting it from when we were renting. Um, and then, you know, you're starting at about when the tomatoes have that first load of, you know, mature green fruits, I'll send in some leaves to a laboratory to get analyzed. And then we try to try to correct the, uh, deficiencies based on those results. And I think the best results we've had with, uh, side dressing the tomatoes was with an actual dry granular type of fertilizer. So just a few weeks ago was feather meal and sulfate of potash. So we needed mm-hmm. the nitrogen we needed the potassium. Um, previously I was trying to put stuff through the drip irrigation, like fish emulsion or different water soluble sources of nitrogen or potassium. And I was either just not doing enough 
of that or not using enough, but it just really didn't seem to be helping until we, you know, hoed in a decent amount of uh, dry fertilizers and then top dressed with some more compost. But I'm mm-hmm. trying to avoid the top dressing of compost because it's just so much work to carry and buckets of compost through the, the crowded uh, paths inside the greenhouse when they're all big plants. Oh, but yeah. Our, our tomatoes get transplanted in the ground towards mid to end of March. So we typically get our first tomatoes end of May, early June. Although it was a little delayed this year due to the cool cloudy spring, even in the heated greenhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they are hungry suckers. You know, yeah, they are. We, we plant them as close as uh, as we dare, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, which the greenhouse beds are they're five feet on center as opposed to everywhere else in the farm is four foot centers. Mm-hmm. So we got double rows, two rows of tomatoes per bed. The rows are about a foot apart and then the plants in each row are about two feet apart. So in theory, it's, you know, yeah, that's pretty close. A one f- one foot apart in in the bed between each plant but it, they're pruned to one vine so yeah yeah you'd have to with that density yeah yeah that's and quite that, a jungle you know, it's, it's quite a lot of work to prune and chalice and um but it's really worth it that i think over the span of a week when we had that first fruit uh flush uh, mature and ripen mm-hmm. we had about a thousand pounds of tomatoes harvested from about 300 plants wow which is definitely we went downhill uh, since then obviously. <laughs> but that's yeah. like the hard part is trying to keep them um fed enough without creating excesses and keep them productive and healthy um and the health is really um you know uh is is kind of a challenge in such a protected environment so we we stopped growing heirloom tomatoes in the greenhouse we do mm-hmm. grow them in other unheated tunnels but our greenhouse has insect screening on the roll-up sides Mm-hmm. Um, even though we have like a big exhaust fan and a, and a, a louvre vent that op- opens up on the gable ends, um, it's still pretty, pretty still air. So that that grit, that leaf mold really took out the heirlooms pretty quickly. It, even if it didn't kill them, it, yeah. it dropped enough of their leaves off where they weren't productive anymore. Um, so you you know uh, picking picking greenhouse uh, varieties is really important. I know the seed is expensive, but it it definitely pays for itself tenfold yeah yeah that um leads into a question i've been wondering about have you noticed that some varieties are better suited to lower tillage systems than others um whether for tomatoes or for other crops um no i i don't I don't, as long as you're, you know, if your soil's not compacted and there's plenty of fertility, I don't think the plants care whether you broad forked it or plowed it or whatever. Um, I would assume that some of the plant health and the preventing disease can be attributed to the soil health from reduced or no tillage because you're obviously getting a lot more of a fungal population, mm. um, which is the slowest to recover from a tillage event. Um, and then, you know, there are certain crop families. I don't think the brassicas really care about any kind of fungal networks. They just, they're too, yeah. I don't know, prehistoric even. It's kind of like a, on the evolution scale or whatever, they're pretty primitive. They're going it alone. No mycorrhiza for them. Yeah, yeah. And I, is it the, the beet family is also another one, I think, that doesn't really have that relationship. Mm-hmm. But that being said, um, I'm sure that the abundance or the, the 
increased level of fungus is probably out competing a lot of the bacteria that can cause those problems and be an issue. Um, and we do have a lot of, uh, I would say our brassica families, coal crops are the probably the most likely to get some kind of disease. Um, mm-hmm. Since we have moved all of our uh, tomatoes into either the greenhouse or the caterpillar tunnels, we don't grow any, any tomatoes outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that would be another one that would just be like hard to keep healthy. Yeah. Have you noticed any changes um, as you've reduced tillage in pest or disease issues generally? Yeah, I'd say um, I'd say since we moved here um, to our new place in 2018, we've definitely had a lot better crop quality. Um, you know, there, with farming, there's never just any one thing. We're definitely more experienced. We're living on the farm. We put in the infrastructure. We're adding lots of compost, which we were using compost in the past, but we couldn't do it excessively because we were renting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all of those things, you know. You're 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 trying to draw a circle, and you you know, you know, with farming, you don't just take a pen and draw a circle. You you add a line here, you add a smudge here, and you know, you have a hundred little steps, and then finally you have your circle. Yeah, that reminds me of a farmer I was talking to recently who was saying that uh, every year um, she learns a little more and she figures once she's 90, she'll know exactly what she's doing on that piece of land. And... Oh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I don't think any farmers really think that they're going to ever have it figured out. And that's yeah. what keeps us going and keeps it interesting. And it really, yeah, this style of, you know, two acres farmer's market, CSA farming, I just every day is different. And it really feeds into my need to just be not doing the same thing all day long. Yeah. Yeah. So in your journey uh, to reducing tillage, um, are there systems that you've tried that you decided to drop? Um, yeah, that was, I did. Yeah. You know, I think just if, if you're too much of a purist for no-till and you're just not like thinking about what you're trying to do you might uh inadvertently just create more work for yourself like like if i got a bed that's empty and we haven't planted it yet and it's, it's the spring and starting to get weedy and, and it gets a little out of hand and the weeds are kind of big i might have to set the power hair a little deeper than i want to mm. but it's just because that's the reality of things you know um you know, the, the cover crops are going to be an interesting journey for us to, uh, to uh, learn more about. And, um, and I'm excited to learn more about it. I, and we're, we're, we're planning on scaling back a little bit next year. So I'm hoping to just have an acre and a half in production. Mm-hmm. So we will have the room to do a little bit more of our farm generated fertility through cover crops, or at least just give something a rest. But I know, I know keeping the perennials from getting established and then and then trying to get a nice seed bed or a place to transplant after growing a cover crop might be a, a challenge. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular ways that you're hoping to use cover crops that feed into a low-till system? Like you mentioned wanting to grow fertility uh, on the farm, and obviously that's a big benefit of cover crops, but are there other ways that you're hoping to feed them into this kind of low-till system? Yeah, you know, if we if we scale back to let's say we just go down an acre and a half, you know, I might 
instead of having a half acre and a full year of cover crops, I might just not have to flip the beds as quickly. Um, especially this time of year, we got to like manually, manually remove crops or weeds to replant. Um, so I imagine, uh, the flail mower is going to be really invaluable and tarping as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I do, uh, not, I I try not to use tarps that often. The voles really like them. Uh, Um, yes. And we used to do a lot more with landscape fabric back uh, at our incubator farm, especially because we had uh, such high weed pressure. Mm -hmm. But I just remember like, I don't know, we were trying to grow melons and some kind of landscape fabric. And then the beds of beets right next to them just got completely eaten by the voles because they were just living under the landscape fabric. So if I do use the tarps, I just want to use them sparingly and just for as long as is needed to have them do their duty. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, it sounds um, like you have thing, an exciting uh, one, journey. Sorry. One thing that I guess, uh, one thing that um, we had tried, I think in 2019, we first, we, we tried a lot more with like the intercropping, like all seeding a row of radishes in between our two rows of cauliflower, putting uh, some lettuce transplants in between some stuff. And it ended up just being uh, really disorganized. And, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the season or what's, what's growing, who grows faster, there's a lot more failures and successes than I was happy with, with this the intercropping business. Mm-hmm. So then we just switched to just trying to have, you know, each thing has its own bed or part of a bed. However, the green heated greenhouse space in March is pretty valuable space. So we will transplant beets and head lettuce and stuff alongside that. And we, we learned the hard way about um, overdoing that to the expense of our tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Overdoing that in terms of uh, uh, intercropping the, too, too closely, yeah, too closely, like putting the beets every six inches. I think the first year we transplanted beets every six inches on either side of the tomato rows, and then it was like, oh, that's too much. So we we just did them every foot this year, and then the head lettuces we typically do ten inches apart in the field, three rows per bed, but we gave them uh, eighteen inches alongside the tomato plants. Um, otherwise if you're intercropping too much your more intended crop your long your long-term crop is just uh is robbed of nutrients water and and such yeah yeah it's quite a balance and yes yeah and i can imagine on a large csa i mean you're small in acreage but you have a a pretty large csa uh, the efficiency of of harvest is pretty important as well yes having more kind of clearly organized planting spaces I can imagine makes it a lot easier and the cultivation too because like mm-hmm. you know I, I bet a cauliflower is pretty easy to hoe but if you stick that row of radishes in then you gotta like slow down a whole bunch mm. yeah yeah very true so it sounds like you have um, an exciting journey ahead of you with cup crops and mm-hmm. um, hopefully we can check in at some point and hear a little bit about your experimentation with those um so as we start to wrap up, I was wondering what advice would you give to other um, vegetable farmers who are interested in reducing tillage? Where would you suggest that they start? Um, I would, I'd probably start with uh, your most weed-free areas, <laughs> for one, yes. especially the perennials. You got you to gotta tame your perennial weeds before you can get into the no-till. And then even, let's say you got high annual weed pressure, don't be afraid to like stale seed that for, you know, just a little bit, you know, you don't want to 
you don't want to overdo the stale seed bed because the healthiest thing for your soil is to have something growing on it, which in Minnesota growing annual vegetables is a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. um, buy, buy your compost in the fall since they had all summer to cook and heat up enough. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, then you don't have to deal with the road weight restrictions that are in place in the Northern States. Cause you, I couldn't even get a truck in here until, you know, mid to late May if I wanted to. Oh, that's know. an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really realize that, you know, our incubator farm was right off a, a highway 12. So there were no road restrictions, road weight restrictions, but our little residential road, I, yeah, depending on the year, it's late May until we can get a semi truck in here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like I said, we moved here in 2019 and the first thing we had um, done to our field was had it plowed. It was compacted and it was sod. So I don't think you can just go ahead and take compacted weedy soil and just start doing no-till um, right off the bat because you'll just it's just a losing battle. Mm. Um, doing it doing it intentionally and not just being a purist or not just oh I saw this YouTube video I watched this conference and this is the silver bullet I just got to do it this way. Uh, I I've been stuck in that trap for a long you know. For years is like oh this is what this book said this is what this grower i admire is doing so we got to do it that way but without taking the critical look to things um you got to do what's working for you and you know with your equipment too um and your time your scale scale i think is really important um you know we spent a long time trying to grow several acres and started every time we cut back on the land that we were producing we were more profitable with less work Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, our our goal with the uh, no tillage and reduced tillage is is less work, um, especially on you know plant health. Soil health contributes to plant health. We got more to think about than just getting a, a big crop that we're sending down to the grain mill. You know, we got shelf life to consider, and, and there's so many more diseases that affect vegetables and than certain other crops. Yeah, it's a much more complex management system just to keep plant nutrition up so you're producing something that's nutrient-dense as well yeah. as the, you know, the biotic um, health of the plants. And I read this somewhere too. Uh, I heard this, you know, as, as, annual, as farmers that grow annual crops, we're, we have to measure our destruction with our con- construction of the soil and vegetables are very destructive on the soil. Like you take a bed of lettuce, like, you know, you, get, you add the fertilizer, then you're, you're hoeing it a couple times maybe. And then you take the entire plant out of the bed. You're never giving back the lettuce. Hmm. Um, so, and especially, you know, we, we have excessively sandy soil. So the, the more we work that ground, the more our organic matter that we spend so much time and money applying to the field is just going to burn up. Like I said, seven inches or so of compost since 2019 and our organic matter is two two point eight percent yeah so i couldn't imagine if i just wrote it automatically rototilled everything after the fact or you know what we'd never get ahead on that end yeah that those numbers i think are a real testament to the effectiveness of just letting that compost sit there because in any system that i've ever heard about that includes tillage you would never get that kind of a jump in numbers so just the fact that you're letting it stay there and settle into the system. Um, and as you say, not burning that up 
is really powerful. Right, exactly. And and I know that our uh, our soil is healthy. Like you just go out into any part of our field and you take one shovel scoop and you have all the worms you need for fishing. Like, <laughs> like they love it here. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds to me like you're taking a very experimental and um, and really in in a lot of ways scientific approach to this where you are you know just really observing and seeing what's working for you and figuring out um more of a um like a really place-based system that is based on what you and heather um are able to manage on the farm the kind of equipment you have the location that you're in Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really admire that approach as a scientist myself. Um, I'm also wondering where else you look for inspiration and for advice, help with problem solving um, as you run into issues with your systems. Um, I think early on it was a lot of Elliot Coleman stuff and he's not necessarily like no-till, um, but then we bought like the Market Gardener book, the JM48 stuff and uh, Singing Frogs Farm, Neversink Farm, any, any, basically anybody, the no-till growers uh, group. There's all sorts of information out there now, even, you know, 11 years after we started, there's way more information just for free online. And, you know, everybody's got their whatever online course they want you to buy. Yeah. <laughs> I've never done that. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, as as terrible as social media actually is, um, Instagram is really useful for like seeing what other farmers are doing. And I, I'm, I definitely post some stuff. Uh, I was really on the fence this winter. I was like, uh, I'm just going to be done with any social media, but we ended up uh, continuing with that. Um, yeah, I've definitely seen some, uh, some cool stuff on your Instagram. Um, yeah. So it's, oh, yeah. it is so great to, to see what <laughs> <laughs> I try to make. Uh, yeah. I make really dumb jokes and try to be <laughs> silly all the time on Instagram. Cause I don't know. People take it too seriously. It's yeah. It's, it's nice to approach it with a light heart. Mm-hmm. You can. Yeah. All you know, right. I'd say you had a question about a no-till system that we kind of gave up on or changed a little bit, but mm-hmm. Last year, we were like physically, manually clearing bed, uh, clearing beds by hand to to replant flip beds. Um, and sometimes that even meant like hauling out a spent bed of arugula to replant. And that just proved to be so labor intensive. We spent you know a lot of late, a lot of money on labor last year, and we we're trying to reduce that this year. So um, this year we're just. We, we, we dropped a couple crops. We dropped melons and we dropped cauliflower. So we had a little bit more space to spare in the field. So instead of physically removing crop debris to replant, we're doing a little bit more with mowing and mm-hmm. tarping. Just give it a little more time. Mm-hmm. It's just ended up being cheaper. Um, this week, we, we are going to end up, you know, pulling out certain crops by hand or old crops by hand to replant because it's kind of the last window for like carrots and beets or whatever um but just scaling back a little bit to allow us to use the 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 tool of time um with tarping and stuff like that yeah 
I like that. I like that. It's um, respectful of your bodies as well, I think, to <clears throat> yes. realize that, you know, sustainability operates on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Yeah. And that being said, we were like, oh, we need to cut back on labor this year. And then it turned out we kind of cut back a little too much. So <laughs> for about a month and a half there, I was just, it was kind of back to the old days of just working nonstop. But then we crunched the numbers and realized that we could afford a little extra help. And, and then we're getting, we're getting a lot more back on track. And, and that's, you know, for the beginning farmer out there, it's, there's a lot to keep track of. Um, it can be a little overwhelming and you'll probably take notes and stuff that you'll never look at again, but you really do need to take notes and treat your farm like a business, run the numbers. And, you know, compa us comparing our labor to last year is uh, it's, it's kind of good for us because we've had, you know, we got 10, 11 years of experience and can compare like that. But, um, you know, somebody's first getting started might not be able to have that luxury of looking back on the last few years. Yeah, having that, having that record is, again, very powerful to make decisions as you go forward. Mm -hmm. So, Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed hearing about your farm and um, how all your systems are evolving. And like I said, I'm hoping that we can check in again um, maybe in a couple of years and see how those cover crops are treating you. Yeah, please do. I'm excited. Uh, you know, every, every year is different and provides a new opportunity and new experience. So, um, yeah, and thanks for reaching out to me. Um, I just love talking shops. So <laughs> same here. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. That concludes this episode of the Vegetable Beat. If you'd like to check out all of our past episodes, head on over to glveg.net slash listen. Sweet. Okay. okay. Thanks, Natalie. Okay. I got to run. Yep. <laughs> okay. See ya. All right. Okay, bye. Bye.